You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. In a room a thousand years wide, we will be discussing Bad Motorfinger, the third studio album by Soundgarden. It was produced by Terry Date and released on September 24th, 1991 through AM Records. This was their first album with bassist Ben Shepard. Bad Motorfinger was nominated for the Best Metal Performance Grammy in 1992. The album was certified double platinum in the U.S. in 1996. On the other mic today is the VP of Product Innovation for Aim Clear, but she will always be a metal director to me. Welcome <laughs> back to the show, Michelle Robbins. Michelle, how are you? I am good. Thanks for having me back. So we seem to be uh, stuck in this not quite metal in the early 90s, uh, which is fine. It's a nice place to be. It was a great period <laughs> for music. There was certainly a lot of exciting things going on. So tell me, uh, how did this record in particular enter your life? Well, I have to say, I was shocked to discover today, to, to just think about it, that it's almost been 30 years since this record came out. In listening to it, because I frequently listen to it, it doesn't sound dated to me. I mean, it always takes me back to that time. But when you listen to it objectively, the sound is just so incredible. I don't think that you could place it in a given time period if you didn't know where it came from necessarily. So just have to say that. But, but when it was released... I was pretty much fresh out of college radio and already working at Hollywood Records, um, but of course was pretty well acquainted with Soundgarden and their music via my work in college radio. They were pretty big, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. uh, their first couple of records. Yeah, this period in music, you know, and specifically what became called grunge, um, which pretty much started, you know, in 88, you know, 88 to 92. For me, it was just magical because when, when I consider all of, the, all of the music that came out during that period and specifically that came from the Pacific Northwest, you know, we're looking at, you know, Mother Love Bone, which ultimately gave us Temple of the Dog and Mookie Blaylock and Pearl Jam, right? Mm-hmm. Soundgarden, Nirvana, Screaming Trees, Alice in Chains, Mudhoney. I mean, like we said... The, the years, you know, especially 91, when you look at what came out then, are just incredible, incredible music time. I was really, honestly, I was fortunate to be, you know, I was already a heavy music fan, but working in the music industry at the same time was incredible. And, you know, I, I have to say, I got to see all of these bands playing clubs. So, I don't know, just seeing them grow from being like, you know, college radio club bands to being these massive, massive hits was pretty amazing. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and were you a, a Soundgarden fan to begin with? Did you like Loud Love or uh, Ultra Mega OK? I did, but this album is my favorite Soundgarden album. This is the one that just, to me, captures all the best of what I love about Soundgarden. Yeah, so I was originally introduced to Soundgarden back, and I think it was... 88 or 89 with Ultra Mega OK. Mm -hmm. uh, my buddy Steve had, uh, had it. He really, he liked it and he thought I would like it because I was, uh, I was just listening to metal at that point. So I hadn't quite started to, to branch out. Uh, whereas he was one of those guys that just, he listened to a lot of different things and, and was listening to things that were, uh, you know, he was that guy that was ahead of the curve a lot of times that stuff he was listening to like three years later would be, would be big right. <laughs> kind of thing. Right. So, but he, he introduced me to Jane's Addiction and a couple other things. Uh, and so he played me the Ultra Mega OK, which I remember enjoying, but I didn't go out and get it. Um, and when I moved to Tampa to go to to go to school, when I went to, to left to go to college, uh, the first thing I I bought while in Tampa was Loud Love. Yeah. And so uh, and I was on board with that record. So when this one came out, I was I was ready for this to be out. I was on the uh, Soundgarden train at that point. 
Yeah, see, I had also when I was in when I was in college, I interned at Metal Blade Records, and Metal Blade released one of the Mother Love Bone records. So I started getting introduced to the sounds coming out of, of the Pacific Northwest and Seattle specifically with Mother Love Bone. I loved Mother Love Bone, who, as you probably know, Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone was um, Chris Cornell's roommate. Yeah, I, I didn't know that at the time. I'm a, I read that. Well, probably in the last 10 years now, but sometime when there was a, a retrospective, uh, probably at some anniversary of Andrew's death that they had mentioned that. And so, uh, I, well, I think a lot of those those guys were in that whole scene where it seemed to be, I don't know if close is the right word, but you know, they that that's one of those places that really felt like it that was a scene as opposed yep. to other places where just there may be a lot of bands playing, but there they they all seem to be in and out of each other's, you know, lives and apartments and bands yeah. and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So. Yeah, no, it was a it was a pretty great scene for sure. Well, let's go ahead and jump on into our track by track analysis. So we have side one, song one, Rusty Cage. I'm going to have to, it's a little embarrassing to admit, but initially I did not like the opening guitar part to this song. I thought it, it just sounded a little bit weird and went on a little, and I love it now, but back in, when it first came out and I first got it, I would fast forward through it a little bit. And then I don't know why, one of those things. I like it now. Oh, see, I had the opposite reaction. I think it um, really it kicks off what is to me a nearly perfect record perfectly. And I was surprised that it wasn't the first single. I don't know why it wasn't, because I think it really sets the stage for what became the, a much crisper and cleaner, um, but still a really fast and heavy sound from Soundgarden. And I just love the tempo and the lyrics and kind of everything about this song. I thought it should have been the first single. What was the first single? The first single was Jesus Christ Pose. Okay, that's what I, that's what I was thinking, but I was like, I've tried to talk myself into Outshined, but I think that was later. And okay, anyway, so yeah, but uh, and just I I I love the the main guitar part. So once it gets past that initial thing, and but what a combination of the guitar and bass. The bass in this song just crushes everything in its path. I love it so much. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, this was a band that was mainly known for for the guitar player and for the singer. And so mm-hmm. I think sometimes the the bass and drums, which were you know that just what a fantastic rhythm section they had but when you're when you're behind chris cornell i think that sometimes you know you, you get lost in the shuffle that's just how it works sometimes but uh yeah, but i think you take they, away the bass you, you just don't have this album oh no no it's yeah. uh, there's just so it's much higher good. album yeah 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 so uh he did uh, fantastic fantastic work on this record and, and uh and i think also just jumped right in and helped with, with, with a lot of the songwriting i think they took a different approach to the songwriting on this record where i think initially it was just chris cornell doing most of the songwriting and here mm-hmm. was a little bit more of a band yeah and he just he, he jumps right in so it's his first record with them and his fingerprints are all over this record and oh absolutely and i think to its betterment so because i i love loud love but i think there's a little more nostalgia for it that initial move to tampa and trying out new new things and yeah whereas uh and i think there a few times in this record we hear some stuff that that goes back there and we'll talk about that what do you think about the johnny cash version of this song what <laughs> Johnny Cash covered Rusty Cage? 
You did not know? Yeah, yeah. On the uh, second American Recordings record, he covers it. So it's basically Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers backing him up. I did. I don't think I've heard it. So now I have to. You have some um, homework. You have some homework, my friend, because it is fantastic. I love it. And I was hoping to talk a little bit, but you haven't heard it so oh, So, I mean, I will say I've heard the other covers he's done, and I think they're amazing because Johnny Cash is amazing, right? Yeah. It's, you know, hard to hard to hear a bad Johnny Cash song, but I got to hear it now because <laughs> I love the song so much. I'm just like, I'm literally, you've got me like dumb and struck. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's different, but it's it's really really good. So let's go ahead and move on to track two, outshined. What do you think about this one? I thought it, you know, I think it's less interesting tempo and and sound wise to me compared to Rusty Cage, right? So it's the next song in the Mm -hmm. the lineup, but it's one of my favorites because of the lyrics and the message. You know, I very much took this to be a swipe at selling out. However, that looks, you know, whether it's in music or, or in, you know, politics or just, just kind of taking a look at what selling out is. This album came out around the same time that a few of my favorite metal bands were sort of starting to lose their shine for me. You know, I felt like they were selling out and becoming more commercial. So that probably influenced how you know things i read into the lyrics but um i just love it it's not as good of a song as rusty cage and i don't think it's as good of a song as jesus christ pose either but i can see why this one was as big as it was i think this was and i'm sure those two did fine for them but i feel like this was the signature hit off of this album yeah this is one that people know Uh, i think even if you don't know much about soundgarden uh, and obviously the stuff that came out in, in the, the next two, you know, especially Super Unknown, because then they just went right. supernova. Right. Um, because this was such a big record for them. Because I think Loud Love was expected to do a little bit better than it did. Like when you, when you talk about with selling out, you know, I think you know, if you want to make accusations of that with Soundgarden on Super Unknown, I don't think it's fair or accurate, but I could see where somebody was coming from. But what I love about this record is, and while it's it's a little bit smoother, a little bit more polished than Loud Love, it, not a ton. You know, and I really feel like the pop culture moved towards Soundgarden as opposed to Soundgarden moving towards the pop culture. And this one just has, you know, this big, thick rhythm to it. And it's got a little bit more groove. Soundgarden tends to be a little more lumbering. They're more in that Black Sabbath character, you know, um, area. And so they don't always have that that movement to them. I think you get a lot more of that on this album and, and without Shined, I think also a, in a terrific vocal performance as well. Uh, so it just puts together where not the best song on the album, but a really representative song of what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that it was much more accessible than some of the other songs. So I understand why it was the more popular one or the one that really, you know, got them to be more popular in more commercial venues. Because I just do think it's more accessible sound-wise. Sure. So, track three, Slaves and Bulldozers.
And this one sounds a little closer to something that you would have heard off of Loud Love. Not a a complete throwback, but I think this has more of that signature sound you would have heard on that record. It's a little slower. It's a little darker. I just, I love the part when, uh, when he, he has such control over his voice that even when he goes into a scream, you can tell he's still in full control. Because a lot of times when somebody hits that scream, it's just, that's where their voice breaks. Right. And that's the point, and that's fine. You know, that's the the point of a scream. But it seems like he controls the vocal throughout the scream. And when he's doing that part, like now I know what you've been taking, and it just that it, where he keeps getting you know louder and louder with it mm-hmm. until he's just just screaming it at the end, but while still having full control over his vocal is is really impressive. Yeah, this song is actually my very favorite song on the album. Oh, okay. I'd probably be embarrassed to check iTunes and see how many times it's been played <laughs> because it's something that I can I could listen to on repeat. I love it that much. <laughs> um, the I find the music is just incredible. His vocals are incredible. I I mean, it's interesting. I recall seeing something I don't know a number of years ago on like you know who's the best singer ever or something, and I was genuinely surprised to not see Chris Cornell up in there because his uh, he, I've just never heard a voice like his before that has the range and the control like you were talking about of his voice so his vocals combined with um the the plotting and heaviness of the song and the lyrics themselves right um because i i took this um song to kind of be sort of like the the quid pro status quo right challenging things so you know it's a, a kind of a direct swipe at a lot of situations political how the music industry works you know really played into kind of my sensibilities of understanding, you know, how to monitor BS out out there and around you, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and then it's better to walk the walk. Um, so I just, I love everything about this song. This is a, a perfect Soundgarden song for me, even though it is nearly seven minutes long. And it doesn't feel like it. There's a couple of songs here that feel a little bit long. And, mm-hmm. and you and I talk quite a bit when we discussed Angel Dust, how some of those songs were maybe a little too long and that that album was maybe a little bit padded as much as we both absolutely love that record. There's one or two times where I feel like there could have been a, a slight trim, but you saying this in seven, I didn't realize it was that long. And I've right. listened to this song, uh, you know, because we were originally supposed to record last week. And so I'd, I'd listened to it a lot last week. And then I had to jump on a couple other things and then, of course, listen into it again for an extra week. And you telling me right now that this is seven minutes long is it, it took me back a bit because I didn't realize it was that long and never yeah. felt that long. Yeah, exactly. And that's hard to do, right? Because sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, there are songs that are not nearly as long as this. And I feel like, why did they keep going? They should have ended it. Like, I can tell you there's a Foo Fighters song that I love, but I feel like it went on for one verse too long. They should have just ended it. And they didn't. And that makes it less of a great song to me, which is strange. I, I love the Foo Fighters as well. But this is not that at all. This, you know, is as long as it should be. Yeah, and it's got that uh, breakdown part where everything slows down mm-hmm. and he's repeating it and he's like a little bit more conversational or, or that's probably not the right word that I'm, I want to use, but that's the first thing that came to mind. So I'm going to run with it. But yeah, uh, and and that really, and that still works because a lot of times when you get those, you're like, uh, okay, yeah, that, that seems like, okay, you, you're having that so somebody can go get a beer during the live, <laughs> you know, the live, the live part of the show. Oh, I was just going to say, it's interesting because I think it focuses you on what he's saying. Right. And so sometimes because, you know, all of the musicians in Soundgarden are incredible. And so you can really 
focus on different parts of the instrumentation of their albums and not really hear the lyrics necessarily or pay attention to them. And so what I liked about that breakdown part is that it really focuses you just on what his message is. You're not getting distracted by the bass or by the guitar or anything else. You're just focused in on what he's saying. And I love that they did that. And I, I don't know if it was intentional, but um, the effect is fantastic. Yeah, it definitely worked. It's a technique that doesn't always work for me, but really works on that song. Yeah. And it's followed by an incredible guitar part. So, you know, <laughs> there, there is a payoff. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Moving on to track four, Jesus Christ Pose. What do you think about this one? I really love um, the tempo and rhythms, right? Most of the the songs on this record, honestly, do incredible things with uh, tempo and, and rhythms. And, and what I like about this is that I feel like the music is struggling with itself sometimes. Like, um, it's very discordant. And I think that's interesting because it's kind of how I interpret the lyrics as well. Uh, it's not one that I go back to a lot. And, and I was surprised that it was chosen as the first single in video. But I suspect that may have been to kind of um, play to the existing fan base from their first records, because it also sounds a lot like their first records to me. I like it, but I think there are much better songs on the record. Okay, because this is one of my favorites. I, I really love this song. And I always, th- this one is just, for me, it's lean. Whereas yeah. usually you think of Soundgarden as kind of like big and I don't know if lumbering always works, but you know, it's just like they, they just have like the big fat, riffs and this one is just this feels more like you're on a motorcycle and you're going a little too fast (laughs) you know it's lean it's driving it's dramatic uh and just the way the guitar comes at you it feels like it's coming at you from two different directions almost like blades coming at you like like from a helicopter or something and his vocals on this one are great and towards the end when uh it was like you know i can't remember the the first part of the lyric but it was like you know it doesn't cost me more to bury you poor and then he the way he just screams out poor because he they they repeat that part you know between like burying you rich and burying you poor doesn't cost me any more money uh and then that last time he sings it is chills i love i love that part of it and my only the only thing that i don't understand about this song is how it didn't kill creed's career before it even started (laughs) i thought we nipped that in the bud with this song that the you know the arms wide open bullshit we don't want anymore but uh, yeah yeah, yeah I'm wrong. I guess I was wrong. Yeah, no. I love what, yeah, what you're saying about the music is, is great. It does sound like a, a motorcycle ride. That's interesting. I didn't, hadn't thought of it that way. And I do like it, but um, it's not my favorite. And I know it's, it is one of people's favorites of theirs. Like when you ask people about Soundgarden, this one comes up really frequently, at least people that I know. Yeah, and like you said, it was the lead single. So, I mean, yeah. I'm sure yeah. some people that, that that may have been their first exposure to Soundgarden. And so sometimes, sure. and, and it's um, it's one that'll catch you. So, I mean, even if it's, if it's not one that stays with you for a long time, it catches you real fast. So, track five, Face Pollution.
That woo that he does at the very beginning and repeats a few times is either like exuberant or silly, depending <laughs> on my mood, what I'm listening to it, it feels like, because he, you know, this isn't, this is not a joyous band <laughs> for the most part, you know, <laughs> this was not a fun party band. Right. Uh, and they, well, they weren't quite as self-serious uh, as some other, but they're, they're pretty close. And I think that was one thing that kind of marked that whole scene was how self-serious everybody could be in it. And, yeah. and how, you know, dour and yeah, maybe even nihilistic at times. Something about the way he just does that woo. It sounds like, you know, like a, a girl out, you know, in, in the sunroof of a limousine <laughs> going down the strip because she's going to go get drunk or something. And that's probably not what he wants me to think <laughs> when he was singing it, but it's something I couldn't help but think just especially recently. So uh, I, I think this is a it's a really good song. There's some horns on this song, which I didn't really pick up until just recently, or, or maybe maybe it's keys or something, but I think there's a horn section going on towards the end of the song. And, you know, I think we just went through this incredible run of four songs. And this fifth song doesn't really drop off too much because I think those first four are just, they're just fantastic. And this one is still really, really good. What do you think? Yeah, I would have left this off. It's not bad. Um, I just don't think it's remarkable against, you know, what so far has been a pretty remarkable run of songs, like you said, right? Mm, And um, the next one that we talk about is a favorite. So I feel like this would have been the perfect side. I miss having sides of records. If you had left this one off, I typically will skip it. It's I'd rather get to the next song than listen to this one. (laughs) It's It's my reaction to it and has been forever. Okay, well then let's go ahead and do that. Let's go on to Somewhere, track six. What do you think? So I think this is a perfect ending to the first side, really, right? I mean, uh, it kind of kicks off really fast. And then with Rusty Cage and Outshined and Slaves and Bulldozers slow it down a little bit. And then Jesus Christ Pose takes it, you know, back up a bit. And then you've got this really, I feel like it's a lovely song. <laughs> it's weird to think of Soundgarden and love songs is not something you typically think of, especially at this point in their career, right? But to me, it's as close to a love song for Soundgarden at that time that you get. And I love how it does kick up at the end, right? So I think it's kind of, it's a perfect song. I love the song. Um, I love listening to it. And I just think it's a lovely way to end that side. And this is Probably my least favorite song on the album. Um, no. Yeah, yeah. So, I, and I think this is why do you Sonic- hate love songs? <laughs> Come on. Because yeah, I'm I'm an objectively bad person, Michelle. That's there, that's, that's, that's what we're that's learning, what it, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I, well, it's not that it's a bad song. It just doesn't do a lot for me. And this really reminds me of where they go. So I mm-hmm. think that somewhere is a bit of a template for what they would follow a little bit later sonically. So it's not nearly as heavy. What it is, I just don't care for the chorus. I don't like oh, the, okay. the the way the music goes into the chorus because I like the verses are very good. Mm-hmm. 
And then just something about that bum, 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 the way it goes into it just doesn't do anything for me. Okay. Uh, but then at the second half, like you said, it does pick back up and the bass gets all bendy and weird. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I really like that part of it. And I bet if I would have listened to this on vinyl, I almost picked this up on vinyl the other day just so I could listen to it a few times before we did the show and ended up not being able to do that. So I will get it at some point. I bet I would like this better as the last track on the side, as opposed to just a song in the middle. Right. I, I feel like listening to this, I've never, I've always listened to this on, on CD or, or on uh, streaming. Right. And so uh, listening to that, to it that way, I bet would have a bigger impression on me because it is a little bit slower while also being a little bit weirder. And that's a place if you want to experiment a little bit, and that's a good place to do it. Right. So that brings us to the end of side one of Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden on I Fucking Love This Record with my special guest, Michelle Robbins. What's going on with you these days? Well, I have joined um, the integrated marketing agency, Aim Clear. I'm the VP of Product Innovation. So I'm working across um, DevOps and AdOps and primarily with the analysts. I'm working on bringing new products for the, the agency as well as agency clients to market. And uh, it's been very exciting. It's a great group. Oh, well, very cool. So I know that you uh, you had just finished at one place and we're getting ready to go on to another. So and I don't think this was initially on your radar. So I'm glad that, that this has really uh, worked out for you. And uh, back in back in the old days when I worked at a different place, I, I knew some of the people that you were going to be working with and everybody everybody seems really nice over there and, and really knowledgeable. So glad that that's uh, working out for you, especially uh, because they're they're mainly in the Midwest and you're over on the on the left coast. So I'm sure that's uh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it works out pretty well. I mean, I think everyone's kind of gotten used to, to remote life these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I have been able to spend some time in Minnesota, which is where they're located, um, in person with them. And I'm looking forward to getting back to being able to do that once we can all travel and be normal again. Looking forward to that. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> and now... Let's hear from one of our friends. Hey, Ween heads and music fans. This is Rory from Weencast Podcast. I'm excited to announce the Weencast Summer Spectacular Ween Fan Story Contest. That's right. We want your Ween fan stories. Finalists will be presented on an upcoming episode of our podcast, and the winner will also get an awesome handcrafted cutting board accented with a beautiful boobnish brand. Shane here. The Weencast Summer Spectacular Ween Fan Story Contest works like this. Record yourself telling your wildest, coolest, raddest Ween fan story, five minutes or less, in a wave or MP3 format. We need audio recordings, people. Email your submission to weencastpodcast at gmail.com. This could be a crazy story about something that happened at a Ween concert, how you first heard Ween, or really any story that you have that has to do with Ween. The deadline is Monday, September 7th, Labor Day, and we are looking to present finalists and announce a winner later that month. See ya! Let's get back to the show. Okay, so we're going to flip this record over. We have side two. Song 7, Searching With My Good Eye Closed. Which is, if nothing else, a fantastic title. Now, you had mentioned at the beginning, and I didn't want to say anything then, about how 
this album doesn't sound dated. You're going to have to admit this song just a little bit, especially the intro. There's This is a very <laughs> 1990s opening where they got the, what was it like the, what was that called? The speak and spell or the, yeah. whatever, you know, so like what, what sound does the cow make? What sound does, you know, what sound does the devil make? And yeah, I, I honestly, I look at this song as um, experimental, kind of psychedelic experimental, the way that the Beatles have some psychedelic experimental songs, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you look through that category, it kind of feels like the Beatles doing drugs and if they were a metal band, <laughs> <laughs> you would get this song. <laughs> um, I love it. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of focus and participation as a listener. So it's really good for just kind of getting some work done and having it on the background. Um, I don't think this would be, and I don't think I've ever seen them play it live because it would be terrible, but <laughs> I still think it's really interesting and I love that they tried it and did it. Um, and honestly, it's interesting because I, I do think that when you're listening to the CD, somewhere blends nicely into this. Both of those songs sound less out of place up against each other versus if they were stacked anywhere else on this record, I think they would both stand out even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably because like his, his vocals really soar at times mm -hmm. and, and the song itself plods just a little bit. Uh, and then, but it does have a, a lot of different things going on. I feel like, is there a talk box at some point going on at the end or whatever the guitar effect he has going on almost sounds like, almost sounds like a talk box, but it may just be some kind of fuzz pedal. I don't know about, but yeah, it, it, they did a lot of drugs. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really does feel like that to me. It feels like, it feels like a song that you create about being on drugs almost, you know, I can see that. So that's another one that doesn't do, doesn't do a ton for me, but it's not a bad song. I wouldn't want to chop that one off. I think that it's, it, that's, you know, really well placed in the albums, but like I said, especially when listening to it as a CD. Right. Then on to track eight, Room a Thousand Years Wide. What are your thoughts here? I feel like this is going to be fun because I think we're going to disagree on this one too. Um, <laughs> because uh, this is when I'm, I'm also more or less inclined to skip because I feel like it drones and I love the next song so much that I'm always keen just to get to it. I don't find this one as musically or lyrically as interesting as the others. I think it's a great showcase for Chris Cornell's vocal range, right? You can mm -hmm. go really low and go really high without assaulting you, but um, it's not one of my favorites. Okay, and I really like this one. So you you guessed correctly here. I do I do like this one, uh, and I think because after those the previous two, which I wasn't crazy about, you know, again like both the songs, but uh, I feel like this one is back to being great. It's a nice jam. Uh, it's got this real snaky guitar part that's just going on in the right channel, but with that big chugging rhythm going on. So it's one that you don't really notice without the headphones. And I've been listening to this on headphones lately, so it's just been kind of interesting how the guitars interplay in the mix. 
you know, I'm going to agree with you here with his voice because what I like is he seems to be singing like right in the middle of his range for the most part where he doesn't, usually he's a little bit higher. Uh, and this one he's in the middle, maybe even a little bit on the low end. So it sounds just slightly different than what you're used to from him mm -hmm. uh, while still having full control of it. It doesn't sound like he's, he's trying something he can't quite do or, or doesn't normally do. Uh, yeah. He never really sounds like he struggles. Yeah. Yeah. And so just once again, and there's like the real power and control of his scream in this one. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> towards the end, it's like, it's, is somebody letting the air out of a balloon? <laughs> it's like, oh no, there's saxophone. There's saxophone on this, yeah, on, this on this song, which uh, I don't, you know, that's one thing. I don't remember that. And it, it's just been listening now. It's like, there's saxophone on this <laughs> album. Yeah, well, there's uh, horns in a couple of the, uh, a number of the tracks, actually. Yeah, because uh, I know we we mentioned one earlier that there was horns uh, that came in towards the end. And, and you know, sometimes that works, you know, just having somebody, you know, it's, it just, it always feels like they hire some dude that has a saxophone and they're just like, eh, make some noise, <laughs> make some noise, do what you want to do. We'll see how that works. Yeah. And sometimes that works and a lot of times it doesn't work. And for some reason, it kind of works for me on this one. I, I like it, but mainly just because it's like that first thought is, are they letting the air out of a balloon? That's really the first thing I hear every time I hear it. And then it's like, oh, no, no, no. That's, that's where the saxophone comes in. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to track nine, Mind Riot. I love this song. I always think of Andrew Wood with this song, especially on this record. I, I feel like it's a bit of an ode to, you know, tragedy and loss and, and how that feels in, in your head, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of my faves from this record, absolutely. And I, I do think it's, again, got a bit of that psychedelic feel, you know, same as Searching With My Good Eye Closed. And the lyrics just, this is another one that I just love this song and I can listen to it over and over. Okay, so this is where I was going to say, I didn't want to bring it up before. This is the song that feels a little bit beatly to me. So uh, I have mm -hmm. in my notes, because this one's just, it's a little bit trippy. Yep. Not completely. It's just ever so slightly, but feels influenced by the Beatles. Yep. And I also had in that, that I, I kept thinking that I hear, I heard a little bit of Mother Love Bone in this one. Yeah. Uh, I love the, the line crying through my eye teeth. For mm -hmm. some reason, it feels clever and but doesn't feel too clever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Where it's, uh, yeah. Okay. My teeth. I get it. This whole song together just really works for me. And this one, this is the one that felt a little more experimental and a little bit more, you know, kind of throwing back to stuff that they probably liked when they were younger and, and making it work for them now. Yeah, and I think that you can't, you know, um, discount the influence of bands on on one another, right? And think of all the bands that like you mentioned, like obviously Mother Love Bone, and and you know he was roommates with Andrew Wood, and so who was a very different personality than Chris Cornell, and obviously their music is, you know, a, a complete 180 from Soundgarden. I'd have to imagine there there'd be influencing back and forth. Oh yeah, definitely. And if I understand correctly, it wasn't just that they were roommates. I believe they're also really good friends. So oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh, roommates like just they shared in a flat. They were they were very very close. Yeah, that's uh, that would that would make sense, especially during the time he would have just died probably yeah. right before the recording of this, right? Because he did he die in what eighty nine or ninety? It was ninety. Yeah, I think actually he died before very close to the release of the record. 
the the last mother love on record. Right, it was, it like was the released week, after he died. Yeah, yeah, but just like a week later or something, because it was our, you know, obviously already to to go yep. out if I remember yep. correctly. So yep. it was completely yeah. done. Yeah, it was terrible. Don't do drugs, kids. Yeah, that's that's the one thing we should all have learned. I hope. Exactly. So yeah, well, I love this song and and agreed on the Beatlesness of it. But I think there's a lot of Beatles in this record, <laughs> a lot more than than on first listen people probably thought of. Probably, yeah. I, I hadn't really I hadn't really noticed it until sitting down and listening to this one closer. And when you mentioned it on the other one, I could I could see what you were talking about. Yeah, this was the one that really stood out. So on to track ten, drawing flies. What do you this think about this? Oh, I love this song. I love it. Um, and I know I keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's heavy. It's fast. It's got the great tempo changes. The lyrics are amazing. I love the horns. There's lots of horns in this one as well. And I feel like, you know, it's a, it's a perfect two and a half minutes, right? It's as long as it needs to be. They don't drag it out. They don't try to add fluff to it or any filler. I just love everything about it. And I kind of wish they'd ended the album here. Yeah. Yep. I won't argue with you on that one. Uh, This one to me feels like, you know, going back to talking about influences, this has a little bit of that old Aerosmith strut. So back when Aerosmith were a band still worth listening to. (laughs) Back when they Uh, had strut. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, early, early stuff. And and this reminds me a little bit of that, just the, just those real strutty rhythms. And that's really Aerosmith's contribution to metal. So it's like, you got the the big guitars from, from Black Sabbath, or on the other side, you have like the Led Zeppelin, you know, that style. And I I think somehow Aerosmith is like, you you combine those three bands and almost every heavy band has some kind of reach from all of them. Yep. Have to agree. And uh, this is this is the one that just like I said it's it's not very uh, it's not very long and I I really like those punchy horns in it so mm-hmm. as opposed to because you know like with uh, what we saw before you know, a lot of times it's just they they'll get a saxophone guy to come fart all over everything at the end and at least with this I mean this is more like that punchy horn section that really yep. that really drives it and works that you you wouldn't necessarily think that. Soundgarden and horns, and I'm just like, how did I not remember there were <laughs> horns on this album? Because they're not overwhelming, right? They they yeah. really are there for punctuation. They're they're not there to to be the the focus. They're just there to accentuate. And I think they're used perfectly and sparingly wherever they're used. And in the context of a metal record, that's probably how they should be used. Oh yeah, yeah. You don't want to yeah. can't go can't go too far with that. That's for sure. Without yeah. without becoming silly. On to track 11, Holy Water. This one just has, it has a bit of a bluesy feel to it. And I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I've listened to it a bunch of times and I don't think it's a bad song. I don't know if I would miss it if it was gone. I'm okay that it's there. What about you? What do you think? 
I feel like if there were still singles that were pressed, it'd be a great B-side to something. But um, it's one that I skip. I I just feel like it's boring. <laughs> it's boring and plotting. I love the message, but I don't love it so much that I listen to it. Okay. So let's just go ahead and finish <laughs> this bad boy off. Uh, track 12, New Damage. So it's funny because I feel like this song is very Sabbath-y. You, you talked about the heaviness of Sabbath, right? Of the the kind of heavier, you know, more bass and plotting and spare Sabbath songs. Again, I think that the record would have been better served ending on Drawing Flies because it's such a punch. And this one just sort of, you know, it slowly fades out for me. Mm-hmm. And this is where I feel like Kim Thiel gets a little bit of his guitar freak out out. Because he's he's pretty much a he's a fairly reserved guitar player. I think he's a great guitar player, but he's never been one for flash. And there's not a whole lot of where you like, oh, he did this kind of noodly crazy thing on the solo over here. And I, I don't generally pick up on solos that often. And just you know, I think you and I both listened to a, a, enough heavy metal when we were younger that you know maybe it was cool at one point. But go back and listen, and I find if I'm skipping around for songs like once the guitar solo comes in, I skip on to the next song. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, like, oh, not again. And I don't need to hear that anymore. So, and I feel like he gets a little bit of that out, but not necessarily in a solo section, but uh, towards the beginning, he's just doing a lot of this, like that kind of really freaky guitar thing. Well, freaky for him, let's say it's slower and it is a bit long. Um, and this is one, if you're going to keep this one here, cause it does have that last song. Let's kind of throw it all out there, feel to it. And if they would have chopped it down to even to just like to four minutes, cause I think it's like five and a half minutes long or something. And- yeah. And if it would have been like, yeah, if it would have been a four minute song, this feels like it's announcing that it's leaving, you know, and I'm, and I'm fine with that. So as a, as a last song statement, I'm, I'm okay with that. Now could drawing flies have done the, done the same thing with that nice punchy, punchy horn section? Sure. Yes, of course. But I don't feel like that the album has overstayed its welcome at 12 tracks. I mean, it's one, you know, anything could be. Okay, you know, maybe a little bit stronger at ten, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, unlike with uh, with Angel Dust, where I felt like it would have been much much better without a couple of tracks. Like I don't know if I would necessarily want to chop anything off completely, but uh, maybe. What are your uh, What are your final thoughts here? Well, mostly I think it's important. You know, we talked a little bit about what was happening in in music during the time that Soundgarden, you know, came on the scene and then exploded, and all of the bands, you know along with that and how grunge became a thing how how people that listen to heavy music i think more of us rather than less of us transitioned from just listening to metal to listening to metal and grunge and expanding out from there and um it's interesting because i think it's important to understand what was happening in society in the context that birthed each of those movements right so metal really came out of the 70s and had its heyday in the 80s grunge i feel like really really came out of the 80s in a way that you can understand how by the 90s, right, at the end of the 80s, you know, the promise of the whole Reagan era had, you know, that bubble had burst. 
and all of the bad things that came with it. And so when I listened to grunge, and I remember, you know, when grunge first started coming on the scene, everyone was like, what is wrong with these people? Why are they all so sad? Um, <laughs> it's like, well, because they lived the reality, right? They weren't the recipients of, you know, the era that was supposed to have given rise to prosperity for everybody. They represent the struggle. I tend to think that we've seen the best music come out of times of struggle, not times of prosperity. So I think that's why, you know, when you listen to, when you were to gather together all of these kinds of bands and, and this album and this time period, um, there is a thread through all of them. And uh, it represents contextually what was happening then. So I'm looking forward to the music that's going to come out in the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one's on you, kids. It's time for you to step up, make some yeah. new sounds, make some new music, shock us all and, you know, engage us all. Um, because that's, I, I don't think you can divorce these sounds from that, that time. No. And I also think a, a lot of it came down to just the location of where they were. Sure. Um, and I, I remember reading somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where, some essay about the whole Seattle scene and how at the time, like Seattle was a bit of a, I don't want to say like a backwater, but it was just so, it was far enough away from everything that it had, it had an isolated feel to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was these kids that didn't know you weren't supposed to listen to both Black Sabbath and Fear. You, you, were, you were supposed to. You were supposed to make a choice. You know, you were going to listen right. to metal, or you were going to listen to punk, or you were going to listen to you know the right. alternative or something indie, whatever your college music, whatever you wanted to call it at the time. Uh, and so they didn't know, and that's where they could mix and match. Where other places and other people may have been a little bit more uh, concerned with staying on on brand or on point or uh, making that choice. And you know, here it's like, oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to, to Van Halen, and I'm gonna listen to uh, you know, whatever. But that's, that's still a reflection of, of the choice, right? So in bigger cities, you had all these choices. You had, there was so much that you could, there were so many venues, there were so many places to go and see these bands, so many, you know, you, you could segment off, right? Because there mm -hmm. were the, the punk clubs, there were the rock clubs, there were the other clubs, I don't know what the other clubs were, but there were the punk clubs, no rock clubs. <laughs> in Seattle, they were just the clubs, and who showed up, showed up, Right. Right. So it, it kind of makes sense that they're going to just out of, you know, um, out of what's available, supply and demand, right? Um, that they would have these much greater influences and be able to mix and match. And, and again, I think that goes to the struggle of the areas where some of this music comes out of versus the bigger cities where the other scenes Birth. Yeah, and one of my my favorite descriptions of Soundgarden that I saw was that they're a heavy metal band for people who hate heavy metal. <laughs> that is a very good description. Which I could see, even though I loved heavy metal and uh, still do at times, so it doesn't doesn't always work. But I thought as as a moniker, I thought that that kind of worked. I th I think it says a lot about what you would need to understand with the band, and and I just I really because I liked Ultra Mega Okay and. Uh, I loved Louder Than Love and and this album as well. I, I, I obviously that's why we're talking about it now because I fucking love this record. Uh, and <laughs> after this, I didn't. I, I like a lot of the stuff they did afterwards, but I just didn't love it as much as I loved these three because they weren't quite as heavy. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I still I think. Have to agree. Yeah. You know, still following their muse, and I never felt like. Soundgarden started writing songs to to be put on the radio. Nope. Um, I think it just sort of hap happened that way. That's just where they went with their career. And I've never begrudged them that. It just wasn't for me uh, a lot of the times. But No, I uh, agree. This this record is where Soundgarden stopped for me. But 
I liked Chris Cornell's solo stuff quite a bit. I really liked his first record. The first one that kind of came out, it was Euphoria Morning, I think had uh, had some really interesting stuff. And I didn't really follow much after that. So, because I didn't, I didn't like the thing he did with uh, the Rage Against the Machine guys. No. It took, uh, instead of taking the best of both of those bands, somehow it managed to take the worst of both of those <laughs> bands and put it out. And um, yeah, I'm sure people loved it and that was fine, but it did, that was another one that just didn't, uh, didn't, didn't do a whole lot for me, but anyway, I'm really glad that we uh, we have this one, uh, if if nothing else. So these uh, those first three four records are uh, some some fantastic pieces of music, and I think really our scene setting. I think you know Soundgarden was on the vanguard, even though they didn't get popular until a little bit later. They were one of the first bands from that scene to to really start to do something and to move forward. And I think they were they were considered you know pioneers at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really glad that we got to sit down and, and talk about some more not quite metal metal records. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I would in- encourage all of my listeners if uh, if you have not done so already, try to uh, you know like or follow, share, comment, whatever it is that you're supposed to do, so more people can uh, hear me. I would appreciate that. Michelle Robbins, always always a pleasure having you on the show. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.